And before we get into that, thank you so much for praying for us while we were away at the pastor's conference. We had a great time, and I got to lead a pre-conference. I brought a picture of some of the people that we were serving. You can see some of them there. We did a pre-conference with a da- for two days, and with folk from India, uh, folks from South Korea, the Philippines, and then um, Africa, so Zambia, Uganda, and Liberia. That group there represent about 160 churches. And they're all heads of um, churches and movements. So thank you so much for praying for us. We had a wonderful time of I think, caring for them and infusing them and thinking with them about the future with regard to, to sovereign grace. I mean, it was a really dear time. Thank you for releasing the entirety of the pastoral team to come and help me. Um, I need all the help I can get when I get there because these two days were with this lot, but there was actually another 13 nations that weren't represented at this lot that then got cared for throughout the conference. And it was just a wonderful time of seeing the way God's building our family of churches globally, and they all talk really, really, really well of you in Sydney. So thanks for your example. Thanks for your care for them when they do drop in at different times to come here. Um, you're making a difference. And I remember when that happened to me. I was from the UK. I went to America, saw the church there, and it was like, man, no, this, it blew me away. And it caused me to think, I want to give my life to building a church like that. And when I'm with these guys, they talk about you the same way I used to talk about people in America and seeking to learn. So thank you for your example. Thank you for praying for us as we go. Thank you for releasing us um, in actually going. It means the world, and we just really, really appreciate it. All right, it's good to be back. It's good to be back with my favorite church in the world which isn't all them, love them though I do, it is definitely you. And would you go ahead please and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6. I've called this message Hope for a Troubled Soul. And I'm aware a number of people have been away on holidays, they've been away, and so I just want to, for a moment, take a moment to remind us of where we're really up to in the story. See, in Exodus chapter 3, God encounters Moses and he encounters Moses in the burning bush. He reveals to Moses that I am who I am. I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses, I want you to go now to Pharaoh and demand to him that he let my people go. The people of Israel are my people. I want you to demand to Pharaoh that, they, that it's time for them to go. I've heard their cries. I've seen their affliction. I've remembered my covenant. It's time for them to go. And Moses classically, over five questions, comes out with, here I am, please send someone else. You know, his whole premise is he stands before the Lord in the burning bushes. Listen, I hear where you're coming from. Thanks very much. Wrong guy. You need to send someone out. But then Moses walks in obedience to the Lord. He's affected by the Lord's words and he returns to Egypt. He leaves Midian, all that he's known for the last 40 years. And he goes back to Egypt where he's from. And he starts to tell the elders about what God has told him. And miraculously and wonderfully, the elders believe him which Moses is shocked about. They actually believe me that God has sent me, and the elders at the end of chapter 4 are actually bowing before the Lord and worshipping the Lord, aware that you are freeing your people. But then when Moses stands before Pharaoh in chapter 5, things don't go quite so well. Moses is standing there with the elders all around him, and he starts to address Pharaoh that the great I Am has sent him, and he demands that he let his people go. And Pharaoh responds in effect saying, Who is the Lord? I do not know him. He's totally unmoved by what Moses is saying. In fact, he's irritated by what Moses is saying. How dare you come into my house and demand 
that you let that I let these people go when I don't even know who this God is. How dare you? And Pharaoh made it much harder for the people of Israel. He demanded that from here on in, they were in their slavery, they're not only going to be making bricks, but they were going to be baking bricks and finding their own straw in the process. So you've got all the people of Israel starting to go out all the way around Egypt trying to find straw so they can make the same quota of bricks every day that they had been demanded by Pharaoh to make before. Well, they are unhappy by that. And so they go to Moses and the Hebrews, in effect, reject Moses. You've come here claiming that God was going to save us. Look at us now. We're worse off than we were before. This is pathetic. Leave us. They rejected Moses, the very thing he had dreaded happening, which is why he didn't want to go in the first place. It's starting to happen to Moses. And so Moses then says this at the end of chapter 5. says, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. See, Moses knew that God had told him that when you go to Pharaoh, he will not listen. He knew that. But he did not count on Pharaoh saying to the people of God, now I'm going to make life harder for you. This is going to be even more difficult for you. You're going to be making bricks without straw. He didn't know that the very people of God would reject him. He didn't know that. All he knew is that Pharaoh wouldn't respond to him. And Moses is overwhelmed. And the question he's really asking of the Lord is, Lord, why? I've followed you. I've come here. I've done what you asked me to do. Where are you? What's up with this? Pharaoh didn't listen. The people hate me. You haven't delivered the people anyway. Lord, why? And God in his grace and mercy in chapter 6, addresses Moses. And we're going to be reviewing the first nine verses, and this is what God says to Moses. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you out into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession, for I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Let's pray.
Lord, your word is sharper than a double-edged sword. And Lord, as we read your word, we don't just read some history book that tells us incidentally about what happened back then. We read a book that is alive. Oh Lord, did your word then do its work this morning and speak to our hearts? Would you open our eyes, as David has cried, to behold the wonders of your law? Lord, open our eyes to behold the wonders of how you are addressing us here. Would we see ourselves in the picture? In Jesus' precious name. Amen. You know, following the Lord, being a Christian, is an incredible thing, isn't it? And I think sometimes as Christians we can get stuck in the trap of thinking life is just so hard. Okay, well, let's just reverse on that a minute. Let's just remind ourselves of how great it is. Following the Lord is an incredible thing. To know that you are right with God the judge, to know that he has forgiven you of your sin, adopted you into his family, reconciled you to him, knowing that you can now call God your Lord and Redeemer and Savior and friend. That the one who dwelt in the burning bush now knows you as friend and calls you and loves you. That's an incredible thing, is it not? And yet, following the Lord, as Riley has helped us see over the last few weeks, isn't always easy. There are times as we follow Jesus, as we take up our cross and follow him, the clue is in taking up your cross and following him. Would anybody want to take up a cross and for that to be a hobby? That's a bit weird. You know, it's a way of life. It's something that in nature we should know, hey, there's going to be things that are hard attached to this. This is not going to be a fun run in the park. This is going to be a marathon for Jesus. And yes, he'll be with us, but there are going to be things about it that are going to be difficult along the way. It's true. There's going to be times of difficult obedience where we open God's word and we know we're called to do something and it's undeniable, but actually doing it is hard. And we know we shouldn't be doing something in line with his word, but also that is hard. We know it's going to cost us. And there's times when just following the Lord can be difficult. We honestly are seeking to serve him and love him and worship him as best as we can, and yet it would appear in our lives the wheels are coming off. Like, how have I got here? How, how is this happening? And it's then, I think, in those moments that, like Moses, we can be tempted to wonder, why? Lord, why? Lord, I'm busy following you. I'm seeking to serve you as best I can, albeit imperfectly, but I'm seeking to follow you with all my might as best as I can. But Lord, how come, because I'm following you, this is happening to me? Lord, how come I have this attached to my life? And Lord, how come I don't have this? Something I so desire that seems to be good in your word, how come it isn't my story? Lord, why? Lord, why me? And Lord, why now? And Lord, why is this happening? I'm faithfully trying to follow you, but this is not working out. It's the cry, I think, of a parent of a small child. Maybe a child that's biological, maybe a child that's foster care, maybe a child that's been adopted, and you've sought the Lord, you believe the Lord has wanted you to have this child, and yet this child will not sleep. It just never sleeps. It just goes on and on. And before you had this child, you could serve the Lord, you had date nights, it was wonderful. But now, all you can do is not sleep and spend time like this. Because it's horrendous. And you lie in your bed sometimes at night, wondering, Lord, Why? I had this kid, 
seeking to serve you. Why? Why? Why are you not allowing this child to sleep? It would help me serve you. Help me serve you. Why? <laughs> it's the cry of a single who knows that right now they're called to be single. That God's called them, at least for this season, to be single and to serve him and worship him unencumbered by a marital status. And you're passionate about that and you want to serve the Lord with all your might and you're doing that and yet the cry of your heart nonetheless is, Lord, if there's a way. Lord, I'd love to be married. And yet right now, the Lord hasn't done that for you. No one's come walking through the doors. You haven't met anybody. And you can, if you're honest, wonder, Lord, why? Lord, I love you. I'm seeking to serve you. I tithe. I serve. I give. I'm giving my energy to you. Is it too hard to, to just give me a spouse? Is that a bad thing? Lord, why? Everybody else seems to have one. But what about me? Why not me? Or it's the cry of a spouse who's gone through a trial in their marriage. And he's been seeking to address his wife about it. He's been seeking to... Help his wife love Jesus as if Jesus is everything, and yet his wife just will not respond, will not see it. And this guy is crying out before the Lord daily for their marriage, crying out before the Lord daily, Lord, would you help me? Would you help me? I want to serve you better. And yet each and every conversation they have, there's angst, there's difficulty, there's challenge. And they're going to be tempted to wonder, Lord, why? All I'm seeking to do is follow you and stand in accordance with your word but this is not working out why why are you not helping me why is this not happening or it's the cry of an individual who is still tempted to sin in a certain way maybe with pornography maybe with same-sex attraction and actually wanting to work that out and model that out in their lives and yet they know it's wrong they know homosexual relationships and sexual immorality is, is wrong. They know that pornography is wrong, and yet they're attracted to it, and they've cried out many times, Lord, take this away from me. Take these desires away from me. Take these lusts away from me. Take these wants away from me. And yet each and every time they cry, it just appears that this thorn in their side is going to remain. And they wonder, Lord, why? What's up with this? All I'm trying to do is follow you. Why? Or it's the individual who is undergoing the trial of sickness. And this is a sickness that hasn't lasted a day or a week. It has lasted months. And they're tempted to say, Lord, all I'm trying to do is follow you and serve you and love you. I was doing great before. And yet now I can barely do anything for you because of this sickness. Lord, take this away from me. Lord, why are you allowing this to happen to me in my life? The wheels are coming off my life. Why, Lord? You've called me to follow you. That's all I've sought to do. And now this. See, there can be all times in our lives, like with Moses, when we can wonder why, can't we? In the midst of following him, in the midst of seeking to please the Lord, in seeking to respond to his word and work out our lives in response to his word, we can wonder why, Lord, is this now happening? That's Moses. Lord, why? You addressed me in the burning bush. I've sold everything. I've moved everything. I've gone to Pharaoh. This is not working out. Why? And then comes chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. And chapter 6, verses 1 to 9, I think teaches us this, this one wonderful, glorious thing. 
as God addresses Moses, it teaches us this. That regardless of how our lives may appear to us, our sovereign God will never let us down. That's what it teaches us. That regardless of how our lives may appear to us, regardless of how they may appear to us in the midst of difficulty and sorrow and despair, regardless of how they may appear to us, our sovereign God will never, ever let us down. What a comfort and hope giver that must have been to Moses in this moment, don't you think? And what a comfort and hope giver I think it should be to us as well. It is why the text is here. To bring hope, to bring courage, to bring faith. So I have three points this morning as we seek to unpack that. Number one, God addresses Moses. Number two, God addresses the people. And then number three, God addresses us. We're following the text, so let's begin where the text begins with number one, God addresses Moses, verses one to five. Let's look together then at verse one again. He says, but the Lord said to Moses... Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. What God in effect is saying to Moses in this moment is, Listen, Moses, I know you're worried. I know you're despairing. I know you wonder what on earth is going on. But Moses, you do not need to worry, because Moses, I will not let you down. Moses, this plan that I've given you will not fail. I know you're tempted to just jack in on the whole thing and wonder what has happened. But Moses, I promise you, trust me, Moses. I'm with you, Moses. This plan that I've given you will not fail. Moses, I will not. Moses, I will never let you down. And in verses 2 to 5, then, God reminds Moses of how he can know that God will not let him down. How he can know with absolute certainty that what God is saying will indeed happen. How he can know that Moses, trust me. He says that he really then reminds Moses of two things in verses 2 through 5. First of all, then he reminds Moses of who he is, of who God himself is. Look again at verse 2. It says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Now, for those of you that have been around a few months, you will remember that this is, what Moses, this is what God says to Moses in the burning bush, isn't it? It's chapter 3. Well, it would appear that God now needs to remind Moses of exactly the same thing because Moses has forgotten. There is so much in a name in the Old Testament. Everybody's name meant something of their character, meant something of their personhood, meant something of who they really were. God's already told Moses his name in chapter 3, but it would appear come chapter 6, God needs to remind him in the midst of trial and difficulty and distress of who he is. So I got to thinking this week, if Moses needs that, having encountered the burning bush a few weeks ago, how much more do you and I need that? Don't you think? In the midst of trial, we can be so tempted to forget who God is. But praise God, God doesn't forget who you are. He knows you. But he does want to remind us who he is. And so he tells Moses, Moses, I am the Lord. Moses, I am him. I'm the one who's above and beyond you in every way. Moses, the one who's called you. The one who you're following. The one who is guaranteed to sustain you. Moses, I'm above you and beyond you in every way. Moses, I'm greater than nature. 
For I alone can measure the waters of the earth in the hollow of my hand. I alone can measure the span of the heavens with a hand. I alone can weigh the mountains in the scales. Moses, I'm greater than the nations. As Isaiah 40 tells us, the nations are like a drop in a bucket, a dust on some scales compared to the Lord. That's staggering. A drop in a bucket that if you were walking across a yard, fell off the bucket, it'd just be like, oh, well, it's just a drop, no big deal. Or the scales before you weigh something that you wouldn't even wipe off because it doesn't even weigh anything compared to that which you're putting it on. God is saying, I am greater than all nations. I'm greater than creation. I'm greater than nations. I'm even greater than the greats. Because Isaiah 6 tells us, as he sees a vision of the Lord with the robe filling the temple, the robe all the way through history has been a situation and picture of someone's supremacy. In Isaiah 6, we see the robe filling the temple. Moses, I'm above and beyond you in every way. I am the great I am. And Moses, I'm independent and self-sufficient from you, Moses. Isn't that incredible? That's why God revealed himself in a burning bush that wasn't burning up. Because he wanted to reveal to Moses and to us, I don't even need the bush to keep going. I can self-sustain myself. I'm fine. As Matthew Henry says, the greatest and best man in the world must say, by the grace of God, I am who I am. But God says simply this, I am who I am. You and I need need the Lord for our life and breath and everything else, but God doesn't need you for any of those things. He's completely independent, completely self-sufficient, completely all-powerful in every way. When he says something is going to happen, he has the full ability to make it happen. And he is completely and eternally unchanging. All this is in his name. That's why God doesn't say, I was who I was, or I will be who I will be. He says, I am who I am. Eternally present and eternally unchanging. Unchanging in his grace, unchanging in his majesty, unchanging in his sovereignty and power and splendor, and unchanging in his mercy, and unchanging in his grace, and unchanging in his kindness and care and love. So Moses is there, understandably concerned. Lord, what has happened? What am I meant to do now? Nothing's working out. And God says, Moses... It's going to be fine. Moses, I am the Lord. Moses, I'm above and beyond you in every way. Moses, I'm eternally unchanging. Moses, I'm self-sufficient and independent. Moses, you can trust me. God placards before Moses' eyes in his name, his greatness towards him yet again. And so God reminds Moses through his name of who he really is. But secondly, he reminds Moses of his loving intimacy with his people. And we shouldn't miss this. See, when God says, I am the Lord, he's not just trying to placard his greatness before Moses' eyes. It's far more similar to a parent who takes his young boy and pops him on their knee, seeing that this child is in distress and anguish and difficulty, and says, son, I've got you. You can trust me. I love you. Son, you can trust me. You know why you can trust me? Because I am your dad. I'm older than you. I know more than you, believe it or not. And I got this. And you've got this. You're going to be fine. 
That's really what is going on here. And you can tell that because God reminds Moses of four things that he's done for him and his people. All of which speak of God's intimacy and love and affection and care between God and his people. And so he reminds him, first of all, how he appeared. How he appeared to Moses' forefathers. Look at verse 3. It says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. He's saying, Moses, listen, I want you to understand, Moses, about everything that's going on here. It all started with me. We didn't get here now. Moses, let me remind you of everything that has happened before. It didn't start with you, Moses. It started a long time ago, Moses, when I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. Moses, there were thousands of people I could have revealed myself to, but Moses, I appeared to them, your forefathers. Moses, my faithfulness has been going on for many, many, many generations before it arrived at you. I appeared to them, Moses, and I established a covenant with them, a promise with them. Look at verse 4. It says, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. So God is saying, Moses, this all started way, way, way before you when I appeared to your forefathers. And Moses, they didn't understand exactly who I was even back then. They knew me as God Almighty. But Moses, they didn't know all that you know. Moses, I've revealed myself uniquely to you as the Lord. I'm progressively helping my people know who I really am. Moses, you're unique, as are the people of today. And yet it all started with them. And because it started with them, I established my covenant with them. I promised them. And that promise is in Genesis 15, when God addresses Abraham. And he says to Abraham, Abraham, although you have no children, you are going to have children. And they're going to number more than the stars. And Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. A nation that will be a blessing to all the nations. A nation where I will be their God and they will be my people. And I will give them Canaan, a land that they're just sojourners in at the moment. I will give it to them as an inheritance. And within that context, I will be your God and you will be my people. Abraham didn't even have any kids. It's overwhelming. And yet what God is reminding Moses in this moment is, Moses, look back. I appeared to them. I established my promise with them. It went from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Now look at the people. There are millions of them, Moses. Moses, I've established a covenant and I will not change. I am who I am. I promised them that this is what I would do and I will not let them down. Verse 5, Moses, I heard them and I remembered them. It says, moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Just to be clear, he's not saying there, listen, Moses, it's a bit awkward because I forgot about it for years. (laughs) And I've just recently popped in and I heard them. and Oh my golly, I remembered. No. He's saying, listen, I've heard them. In fact, Moses, I've heard them for the last 400 years. And I've remembered my covenant with them. And the truth is I'd always remembered my covenant with them and I was working all the time they were in slavery to this moment. And now is the time. 
Moses, I appeared to your forefathers. I established a covenant with them. I made a plan right then that I've been working for hundreds of years. And Moses, I have heard the cry of my people and I've remembered my covenant. And son, now is the time. Like a child on a father's lap, Moses, trust me. I've got this. I know this looks bleak to you. I know the wheels seem to be coming off for you. They're not. I'm at work. Trust me. What confidence and hope and comfort that must have brought to Moses' soul, don't you think? And you find out in verse 10 that it indeed did bring hope and comfort to his soul because he did go straight back into Pharaoh and start talking again. Before that happens, God wants to address the people. He wants to bring comfort and hope and confidence to the people. So that's my second point. God addresses the people Verses 6 through 8. And let's read them together. He says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession, for I am the Lord. And as these three verses are beautiful verses, because they are verses that speak of God's great plan of redemption for his people. And so to to Moses, God reminds him of the past. He gives him four reminders of the past as to how he should know that he can really be trusted. But to Israel, God prophesies seven things in the future, seven things that he's going to do for them, seven promises that he's going to do for them by way of redeeming them. That's what he lists to them. Boom, 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 boom. Moses, get back in there. Tell them I'm the Lord sent you and tell them these things. Tell them, number one, I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. Number two, I will deliver you from slavery to them. Number three, I will redeem you. With an outstretched arm. Number four, I will take you to be my people. Number five, I will be your God. Number six, I will bring you into the land I swore to give to you. Number seven, I will give it to you for a possession. Is that not wonderful? God looks him in the eye and says, listen, I will do all these things. I will redeem you. I promise you. I've got this. What Moses is telling you is true. I will do all these things. I've heard your cry. I've remembered my covenant with you. I'm coming for you. Trust me. I will, I will do this. And to top it all off, if you notice the start of those words, and at the end of those words, God reminds them both times, I am the Lord. Says it at the start, says it at the end. He's trying to help them see exactly what he's helped Moses see. That Lord, Moses, I'm he. I'm the great I am, the one who's above and beyond you in every way, independent, self-sufficient, trustworthy, unchanging in love and grace and power and mercy and sovereignty, and I love you. I am is coming after you, and I will do these things. One would assume that surely the people of Israel in this moment would be ecstatic, would you not think? 
You've been in slavery for 400 years. One would assume that surely now they would be bowing to their knees and saying, Lord, this is amazing. I trust you. But they don't. They don't at all. And what happens in verse 9, I think, is one of the saddest and most minor key verses in the entirety of the Bible. Verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. He said all that the Father had told him to say. But they did not listen to Moses. They didn't listen. Because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. God is seeking to minister to them. He's seeking to come after them and saying, I will do this. I will redeem you. I will come after you. I'm coming. And the people of God effectively look God in the eye and say, I won't listen. I don't trust you. I don't believe you. I won't. One commentator says it this way. He says, the I wills of God's salvation lead to an I won't from God's people. It's so sad. Moses, tell him, I promise. I'm the Lord. I am he. I'm the one who made the covenant with their forefathers. I'm the one that sustained them all along. Moses, I'm coming for them right now. Just tell them. Oh, Lord, I did tell them. I told them. What did they say? They said no. They said no. We don't believe you. We don't believe you're powerful enough. We don't believe you care enough. We don't believe you're bothered about us. We don't believe you are trustworthy. And so, Lord, I won't. It is one of the most tragic and sad verses, I think, in the entire Bible. But as the sun then sets on these verses, it's a verse that can never be erased. A moment in history when Israel rejected God Refusing to listen to Moses and refusing to believe in the promises that God was giving them. But as the sun then sets on that verse, I think you start to realize as you meditate on these verses that God is actually addressing someone else. There's another group that he wants to talk to. He's engaged with Moses. He's engaged with the people. And that third group, I believe, is us. You and me. And that's point three. God addresses us. The people of Israel blew it. They refused to listen to the Lord and believe in his promises. And what happened? God did it anyway. He redeemed them and saved them anyway. He did all that he said he would because he's good to their promises. He's good to who he is all the time. He continued to care for them, continued to love them, continued to show them grace because he is faithful to the end. So how crazy were the Israelites not to believe him? But as they stood in their picture of time, they didn't believe he could do it. Didn't believe he wanted to do it. So they wouldn't. My friends, I believe the question that then that, all, that begs for us 
is you examine this text as a whole and you realize Moses is writing this not for himself as a personal diary, but for you. But I think an important question begins to emerge, I believe, from the Lord. And it's this. It's a question that I think each and every one of us need to answer as we come to this text, and particularly verse 9. And here's the question. The people of Israel refused to listen to the Lord and believe in his promises. So what will you do? They refused to listen. Refused to believe. But their time in history is gone. Now it's you. Will you believe him? Will you listen to what the Lord says to you by way of his promises? Or will you, like Israel, say, I won't? See, my friends, it's all too easy, isn't it, to, as we spend time in these woods, to point the finger at the people of Israel and go, what is up with that? What were they thinking? Why did they not trust the Lord? Why did they not respond? I mean, look at what happened. He's clearly trustworthy, right? And forget that when we point the finger, there are three fingers pointing right back at us. So, well, what about you now? What about you in the midst of your life? What about you in the midst of the trials that you're facing? What about you in the midst of what you're walking through? See, as Martin Luther says, the Bible is alive, it speaks to me. It has feet, it runs after me, it has hands, it lays hold of me. Isn't that wonderful? The Bible is alive. We think we're reading the Bible, but actually all the time the Bible is reading us. It's communicating to us. It's alive. It has hands. It has feet. It runs after our souls and grabs us. It's not just me trying to help your imaginations. This is the Lord using the Holy Spirit in your life, bringing it alive in your lives. Because it's alive. It has hands. It has feet. It has a mouth. It's reading you. And so if the people of Israel refuse to listen to the Lord and believe in his promises, what will you now do? See, for all of us at various different times in our lives, we are tempted, are we not, to wonder why? Lord, why? We all have times in our lives when in the midst of following the Lord and seeking to serve the Lord and love the Lord and worship the Lord in every area of our lives, we wonder, Lord, as I do this, why is this happening? How has this arrived on my doorstep? And Lord, as I love you and serve you and seek to honor you, Lord, why have I not got this? Why have I got this and not this? Because I wanted this, and this isn't bad, but you've given me this, Lord, why? for how long? What's up with this? Just like with Moses, we can all be tempted at times to wonder why, but this text teaches us that regardless of how our lives may appear to us, our sovereign God will never, ever let us down. And my friends, the people of Israel only had seven promises directed at them. How many more promises do you and I have directed at us in Christ, don't you think? There are hundreds and hundreds of promises directed to you and I in Christ that God says, I promise, I will, I will. He begins by helping us see, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord 
will be saved. That isn't just a saying. It's a promise. It's God himself communicating. Listen, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, man or woman, it doesn't matter. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on my name and I will save you. It's a promise. And God promises within that same time frame to forgive you of your sin. That if you really call on the name of the Lord, he will forgive you. He will remove your sin as far as the east is from the west from you. He will now no longer count your condemnation considered to be to your account. Because through Jesus, it went to his account instead. He made it possible for you to be redeemed and reconciled. Redeemed from the power and penalty of sin. It's a promise. Anybody that is struggling with sin and just says, I can't change. Well, then God is a liar because he promises that I will break the bondage of sin in your life. You're just being duped by the evil one in your flesh to think it still carries on. But actually, God says, no, I have broken the chains. Through faith, it is done. You'll still be tempted. You're still going to go through things, but you no longer have to follow that pattern in your life because I've reconciled you and I've redeemed you and I've brought you back to myself. God is now not only your king and redeemer, but friend. That's the power of the gospel. If you're not experiencing a friendship with God, then there's still some more to come for you. Because if this is just a group of doctrines to you, you haven't got it yet. It is friendship with God, reconciliation to God, to know him genuinely, that is the fruit and juice and energy of all salvation. It's the glory of what it means to be a Christian, that I am now a friend of God. He also adopts you into his family. How wonderful. Romans 8 verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Fact, promise. I promise you. All who put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and thus receive the gift of the Spirit, I promise they are sons of God. You know what happens to a son of God? Heaven happens to a son of God. It's beautiful. John 14, Jesus says this. It's a promise. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? But if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. You hear that? It's a promise. I will. I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. It's a promise. Jesus is looking us in the eyes and saying, listen, if I go, which indeed he did, he ascended to be at the right hand of the Father, then what is he doing there? Like hanging out, resting until we turn up? No, no. I'm busy preparing a place for you. I'm busy preparing a room for you in the Father's house, making it just perfect for you. It's got your name on the door. It's a promise that I will do these things. And if you've ever wondered, well, what if I don't make it? What if I don't actually get there? Well, he promises you will. In Ephesians 1, verse 13, he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his Glory. It's littered with promises. Do you see? If you put your faith in Jesus, then I will save you. I will give you the Holy Spirit, and He will be a guarantee. Absolute guarantee. We're not talking about Kmart. We're talking about a divine guarantee of the King. 
The seal of a the king would always wear a ring. And so when you see a seal in Scripture, he's talking about the seal of a king coming down on somebody's property or life. I'm putting my seal on you. It's the promised Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit guarantees your inheritance in heaven until you acquire possession of it. It's filled with promises, promise after promise after promise after promise to all of God's people. And as we await that day and seek to follow him this day, he then promises, even in the midst of it sometimes being hard, that you know what? I will never leave you or forsake you. I will hem you in both behind and before. I will be your shade at your right hand so that the sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. I will care for you with the intimacy of your father without ever slumbering or sleeping. I will indeed watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. That's just a few samples of how God talks to us all the time again and again and again as he takes us as a father and puts us on his knee and says, trust me. Trust me. I've got you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. For I will use all these things in your life for your good and my glory. I will never leave you. Trust me. The people of Israel refuse to listen to the Lord and believe in his promises. What will you do? All eyes are now on you. And I want to exhort you then as a pastor who dearly loves you. Regardless of how your life may appear, trust him. Trust him. If this is true, then trust him. Because he is the Lord. He is Yahweh, the great King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who is above all things. The one who is self-sufficient and independent and the one who is never going to change in his sovereignty and splendor and majesty and glory and in his mercy and grace and care and love. The great I am called your name. And if you've ever wondered how he feels about you, then gaze at Calvary. Because he so loved you that he sent his son to die in your place. He can be trusted. Exodus chapter 6 verse 9 has already been written for the people of Israel. It can never be rubbed out. In response to all of God's I wills and promises, they responded, I won't. I refuse to trust you. I refuse to listen. And yet, my friends, the verses of our lives are still being written. They're still being penned even now. Your story, your history. And so I want to encourage you then, trust him. And with faith and hope and courage, then truly be your theme. Let's pray. Lord, you are such a kind and loving Father to us in the way you talk. Lord, I thank you that in the way Moses came to you in this moment, you didn't just brandish him or allow lightning to strike him down. You graciously listened and responded. 
And Lord, to each and every one of us in our humanity, you do the same. You know that we're frail. You know our frames. You know how we're made. You know our thoughts before they even come into our mind. And so, Lord, I thank you then for this wonderful reminder. This wonderful reminder that you are sovereign and you are good. And that regardless then of how our lives may to look to us in the horizontal, we can trust you. Because there is a great I am above and beyond it all. So Lord, would you help us to lift our eyes to you? Would you help us to gaze at you? And would you help us to be amazed with you? Lord, I do pray for each and every one of us. As we go forward from this day, as we go out into the world again and seek to follow you and love you and minister to people and make disciples of all nations. Lord, as we go, would we go in hope and faith and courage for the road ahead? Because you can be trusted. And in you, then, may all our trust reside. In Jesus' name, amen.